This is the RSM Orthopedic Section Podcast. We feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. My name is Akib Khan, and I'm an orthopedic registrar on the Section Council, and I'll be your host on this podcast. Welcome. Welcome to this episode of the Royal Society of Medicine's Orthopedic Section Podcast. I'm joined by Dr. Louis Coizier, who is a care of the elderly physician working in Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. He has a specialist interest in the medical management of older surgical patients. His clinical work involves embedded care and optimization of patients admitted under general surgery and orthopedics with a specific interest in bony injuries and the management of older patients following falls. Thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. You've delivered a very interesting talk at our most recent hip fracture uh, symposium, where you were speaking about the management of elderly patients who have hip fractures. And I wanted to go through that with you today. My first question is, are you convinced that early surgery leads to decreased mortality? And what's the evidence for that? I am convinced by early surgery. You know, without doubt, in the last 10 years, there's a huge wealth of evidence that suggests early operative intent by the orthopedic team and getting these patients to theatre definitely within 36 hours has shown improvements in their overall mortality and you know in the last couple of years we've also identified other parameters that early intervention has an impact on these patients as well so early surgery has been seen in reductions in chest and respiratory complications as well as um, early surgery leading to improved length of stays and um, better discharge to original destination rather than institutionalization for these patients. Thank you very much. That's very clear. And there was something in your talk which I found to be quite an impactful statement, which was um, a line where you said that the reason for delay must be more beneficial than having early surgery. And obviously there can be some interplay between what the anesthetist, what the um, orthogeriatric consultant, what the orthopedic surgeon may feel in that domain. So in your opinion, when is it acceptable to delay an operation for a hip fracture patient? So it's a really, really interesting topic. And it's something that results in lots of dialogue between orthopedic surgeons, anesthetists and orthogeriatricians. And it's one of the most fascinating parts of the job that I do day in, day out. And the overarching thing for me remains the same thing. You know, patients do better if they are operated on in a efficient and speedy way. So a reduction in that time, we know their outcome is going to be much better. Now, Obviously, there are scenarios where things are, you know, not ideal or not appropriate to continue. Now, the Anesthetic Association back in 2011 had what they described as acceptable delays. And they listed out some some things which actually are very sensible. So, you know, if the patient was severely anemic with a hemoglobin of less than 80, or if they had severe derangements of their electrolytes, or they were suffering from cardiac complications, particularly acute Um, heart failure, or if there was severe sepsis going on, then these were seen at the time as appropriate to delay surgery. Well, you know, all of those seem very reasonable on paper, 
but actually their stance in their most up-to-date guidance has actually slightly changed. And it's the idea that we need to be certain that delaying the operation to deal with any of these things are going to give a good outcome for these patients. And actually the vast majority of things that were mentioned in these original guidance are things that we can sort out efficiently and quite effectively within you know a few short hours a good example of this is you know if they are anemic we can get blood into them relatively quickly and increment it in an appropriate way which means that yes they don't go to theater with a hemoglobin of 65 they go to it with a hemoglobin of 90 but that shouldn't take two or three days that can be done in a few hours which means they can still hit the target of getting to surgery within ideally 24 hours but if not within 36 hours and it's about this balance of trying to correct as many things as possible, at least get them going in the right direction. So the patient is stable or as close to being stable as possible so that they can undergo the operation. And the reason I feel so passionately and so strongly about this is that if we don't undertake the operation in a speedy manner, you know, the issues that the patient is going to face as a result are going to be much worse. And therefore it's about this simple balance of trying to identify in a holistic way what is best for the patient and in most situations the best for the patient would be to optimize them efficiently within a few hours get the patient stabilized but still aim to operate within that first 24 hours thank you very much that's very clear you know, sometimes we do find it difficult to um, get patients to theater in a, in a quick enough manner. And one of the common reasons for delay may be outstanding investigation. So an example of this is often patient has a murmur, oh, they need an echo. And, you know, depending on the setup in your institution, that could take a day, it could take two days to organize. That's a common reason for a delay. How can we, is, is an echo needed or, and if it's not, how can we convince, you know, the systems and the anesthetists and, and, and our colleagues, you know, to, to, you know, let us get on and fix the fracture or get the patient up and mobilizing sooner? So every week, without a doubt, there will be a patient who gets admitted to, to my hospital, who someone has heard a murmur and that automatically results in a lot of anxiety amongst the anesthetic colleagues and that results in a lot of frustration usually in the orthopedic team and actually i understand the concern about people when they identify a murmur in a patient you know it clearly suggests that there is some underlying valvular dysfunction but the overarching thing is even if we find that this patient has severe valvular dysfunction we're not going to replace their valve or intervene with their valve before operating on them to fix the fracture. And we know the outcomes for patients if we don't fix the fracture at all, or we delay fixation of the fracture are very, very poor for these patients. And so my feeling and lots of feeling amongst my colleagues and a lot of anesthetic colleagues actually, is that it is important to clinically assess the patient to identify what type of murmur we think this is and what it relates to. And then it's about risk stratifying the patient. And that might be trying to work out what their exercise tolerance was before uh, or simple things like um, trying to identify if the patient had any symptoms suggestive of anything more sinister going on with their heart. Now, you know, even in some institutions where an echo is available straight away, you can get a V scan or you get an echo from the department done within a few hours. 
well that's that's fantastic you know we're in a situation where you've got the echo that echo is able to provide more information for the anaesthetist mainly and the intensivist if needs be to explain how we manage the patient fluid balance how we manage them in the post-operative periods but having that information is great and very helpful but it should not stop our patients from going to theatre early and you know it's about having an honest and open dialogue between the geriatrician the anaesthetist and the surgeon to basically be very pragmatic about it and identify that you know even if we do find that the patient has something valvular going on well, it's not going to prevent them going to theatre and it's not going to massively change what we actually do. Yes, of course, it might mean they amend their anaesthetic technique or it may mean that the patient needs more intensive monitoring for the first 12 to 24 hours, but actually it should not prevent the patient. So my overall feeling is, is, is similar to many people in that, you know, a murmur is important to pick up clinically and it's important to know about during the perioperative periods but it should not slow down the patient going to theatre. And an echo is by definition not required in our patients unless we think something sinister is going on. Thank you. And that was one of the common delays that um, you discussed during your talk. And I think the other common delay that you, you mentioned was the anticoagulation issue. And, and is there any up-to-date guidance or anything you can, you can help us with in that domain? So anticoagulation is going to be, you know, a new chapter in the orthopedic curriculum. You know, 20%, maybe even 30% of the patients that are admitted with neck femur fractures are on some sort of antiplatelet or anticoagulation. And this, again, causes massive anxiety amongst juniors and senior members of staff. But, you know, I, I, you know the way that we should think about it is by being as pragmatic as possible. And in general, the antiplatelets, aspirin, for example, there should be no reason the patient couldn't go straight to theatre and have a pretty benign course after that. Clopidogrel causes more anxiety amongst um, some colleagues, but actually the evidence suggests that you can carry on and the patients do not have adverse outcomes. If someone is very concerned and feels that you know, they need some sort of element of, of, of safety net. You can give the patient a pool of platelets at the time of the operation so that, you know, it allows them to have functioning platelets. With regards to warfarin, well, you know, we've got very used to warfarin over the last 20 years. And it's very straightforward in that most people are happy with an INR of less than 1.6, which can be achieved quite quickly with many of the agents available to us now, um, which means that patients have um, medications that can be given to them, like PCC, which can reverse the warfarin and the INR very quickly. So the one that you want me to really talk about are about the direct oral anticoagulants, so the apixabans, the rivaroxabans, etc. And actually, if you look at the literature, it is very straightforward. They advise that in a normal patient with normal renal function, within 48 hours, this drug is out of the system. And that's absolutely fine for elective surgery where you can plan and you can stop the anticoagulant appropriately. And that's what I would advise in those situations. However, with our patients, what we can actually see is that delaying it of up to 48 hours is going to have detrimental outcomes for these patients. And actually a lot of the evidence now is suggesting that a vast majority of the drugs are out of the system within 24 hours. So my 
personal feeling and the feeling in the general evidence base in the last 12 months has started to shift. And it suggests that operating on these patients within 24 hours is not only safe, but actually better than waiting 48 hours because of the impacts of the delay of surgery for these patients. Very good. So let's not wait for the echo. Let's assume that it's bad um, and treat them accordingly. And let's actually operate on these patients who are anticoagulated a bit sooner because we know that waiting as if they were an elective patient can actually be quite detrimental to them. Um, so that, that's quite clear. Um, uh, so thank you very much for sharing that. Now, another interesting aspect of your talk was about things that we should be mentioning in the consent process for these, these patients. And we've all been there where it's four o'clock in the morning, you've been referred a patient who had a fall perhaps 12 hours earlier, has been sitting in the emergency department, unfortunately, throughout the evening. They're a little bit tired, they've had opiates, so they're a little bit groggy. And you go down there with um, you know, all good intentions to consent them for their procedure. But you don't really know whether you're getting informed and correct consent. Um, is there anything that we should be doing in the consent process to ensure that patients actually understand what it is we're about to do for them? I think it's extremely challenging. I think, you know, clearly the patients have gone through a huge amount of stress within that period. You know, they've either become unwell, that's resulted in them falling over. They've been on the floor sometimes for hours on end before being identified as being vulnerable and on the floor. They then get picked up by an ambulance crew that, you know, without doubt brings them to a hospital that's already busy. They get put into a, a busy accident emergency department, get seen by one doctor who whizzes them somewhere else to get an x-ray. They then get seen by an orthopedic doctor. You know, whatever time of day they come in, they've still spent hours on end in the ED department. And I know that the goal through NHFD is to try and get these patients to an orthopedic ward as soon as possible, but they've gone through the ringer already. And then you've got, you know, this surgical SHO during the middle of the night coming to consent them. And I think you're exactly right. You try your absolute best. And I think it's important to try to explain to the patients as much about what is going on. I think at the same time, it's very, very important at this early stage to inform the next of kin and the family so that they're aware of exactly what's going on and to put them in the picture. You know, and I think what I would always recommend is that it's always important that that consent process happens almost again in the morning on the ward rounds or the post-take ward rounds. And that's not because I expect them to have forgotten anything. It's about that reinforcement for that patient to try and identify exactly, you know, how they're doing in the morning and see if they are in a, you know, more fit state to understand that information. You know, our role as doctors and surgeons is, is to make sure that our patients are fully informed of exactly what's going on. You know, and, I, and I, it's not an easy situation to be in. And I think my advice is to try and break down the information you're telling, particularly to the frail, older, cognitively impaired patients as much as possible. And I think it's about trying to give them small nuggets of information about what is going to happen over the coming hours and the coming days so they can identify what they're agreeing to. I also think it's important to tell them what the alternative is and not operating on these patients. The fact that the outcomes are extremely bad for them, you know, the complications, the deformity, the deconditioning, you know, the fact that they are much more likely to be institutionalized if they're not operated on. And then I always go back to the idea that, you know, it's not 
part of the consent, especially of the patients are capacitors, but you need to update the next of kin. You need to inform them of the situation. And I think information that are given in those first few hours are vital for how the patients do, how their trajectory is. And also it meets the expectations of the patient and the family very early on about this is a serious condition. You know, the mortality associated with an ecofema fracture is, is terrible. And it's about identifying that and giving that information to the family early on so that they can prepare themselves of what the next few days, few weeks even, might be like. Thank you very much. Now, that's kind of touching on my next question, which is about the preoperative factors that we should be considering when these patients present. And you've spoken about quite a few of them. During your talk, you also mentioned um, a few more sort of pre uh, surgery factors that we should be keeping an eye out for, particularly in terms of um, the triggers for the falls and other medical issues that might be happening. Would you mind touching on those for our listeners, please? Yes, of course. Um, I try to bring everything back to sort of basic principles and keep things as simple as possible. But in essence, when we're medically optimizing patients, I always try to think of things that firstly may have caused them to fall over or things that have had has have happened as a result of the fall and it's always important to to make sure that we are certain things through the history you know medications are really important to, to sort of drum out from the patients or if the patient is not possible getting it information collaterally from family or from the gp surgery is, is is very very important other things that are important as well and we often forget about is that older people do like to drink alcohol and one of the things that we started seeing a lot more in the last couple of years is patients who have had you know, small intakes of alcohol for the last 20, 30 years, suddenly don't have any alcohol during the perioptive period and be become very delirious and they develop delirium tremors after the operation. And it's important to make sure that we're not missing those patients and making sure that we treat them appropriately. You know, I think simple investigations are required to optimize the patients. You know, all of them go for um, an extra of the pelvis, obviously to identify the fracture, but making sure that we examine the chest and also get a chest x-ray to make sure we're not missing a, a pneumonia that may have caused them to fall over or an aspiration pneumonia that's developed while they've spent the last two days on the floor. An ECG is really important as well to try and identify if there's any underlying rhythm abnormality that needs to be addressed or if there's a concern about acute coronary syndrome. And it's about trying to think about the patient holistically before they go to theatre. You know, Yes, of course, they're going to hopefully go to theatre in the next 12 hours, but they're still going to be in an immense amount of pain for those 12 hours. And that's going to have a detrimental impact on them as well if we don't deal with it. So for all the listeners, my, my first thing and most important thing is make sure the patient has good analgesia. And what I mean by that is everyone should be offered a block unless there is an absolute contraindication for them to have one. And we should always prescribe medication regularly for our patients. You know, the cognitively impaired frail patients are not going to ask for pain relief regularly like our younger, you know, fractures are going to. So making sure that we prescribe them regularly. And we should be offering them strong analgesics, you know, and our, my personal preference and the preference for, for the trust that I work in is, is using oxycodone immediate release for the first 72 hours to make sure the patients are getting adequate pain relief and, and from our experience we found that oxycodone is good at addressing the pain and also has you know a low side effect profile in comparison to other analgesics for our older patients and like any good geriatrician will tell you is when you prescribe 
analgesics straight away prescribe regular laxatives because our patients without doubt will become constipated in day three, four, five post-operatively. And one of the things that I would stress the most is over 50% of patients who are admitted with an ecophema fracture at some point during their admission and mainly during the start of their admission will have an acute kidney injury. And it's really important to identify that in comparison to previous blood results that we may have on the system and making sure that we hydrate the patient with intravenous fluids, especially when they're nil by mouth, making sure that we review their drug chart and stop things like ACE inhibitors and diuretics, and make sure at all costs that we avoid non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in this patient population as it will cause kidney impairment as well as gastrointestinal disruption as um, evidenced by high levels of gastric ulcers and gastric perforations. And so I think it's simple things to make sure that the patients are, you know, holistically viewed and it allows them to go to theatre in good shape to give them a good perioperative course. Thank you very much. Now, last question for yourself. Uh, we've spoken about the preoperative. We've spoken a little bit about the operative factors. How about the post-operative factors? What should we be aware of and what should we be looking out for? So I think without doubt, there are two things that I would say stand out for me as a geriatrician who sees patients day in, day out. One is anemia. You know, these patients are usually, you know, running borderline anemias in the community. They then have a fracture, which is without doubt going to mean the hemoglobin is going to get lower. And then they've gone for an operation, which, you know, even in the best surgical hands is going to result in a small amount of blood loss. So there's a high chance these patients will have hemoglobins that are less than 70 in some situations. And there's lots of contrarian evidence in the literature for the last 10 years, looking at patients who have been given um, liberal transfusion in comparison to, to not transfusing some. And actually, overall, the evidence doesn't suggest an improvement in mortality, which is interesting. And I, I, I just can't see it myself personally. I want to understand why that is. But more evidence recently has started identifying that if we leave patients with hemoglobins of less than 90, their post-operative rehabilitation is inhibited. And therefore, my advice would be that we should be maintaining the hemoglobin of these patients above 90 so that it allows them to continue with rehabilitation in, in an efficient way. And a good example of this is we do see that when patients are anemic in the post-operative phase, they struggle to sit out. And that's mainly related to postural hypotension. And so if we can maintain the hemoglobin above 90, then that hopefully reduces postural hypertension and allows them to continue with therapy in the post-operative period. And that, that's massively important for them. And the second thing that I think is really important for everyone, you know, orthopedic surgeon, anesthetist, geriatrician, allied healthcare professional, delirium is something that massively impacts our patients. And in essence, delirium is described as an acute confusional state. And it affects nearly 30% of patients following a neck fracture. And that's caused by a number of factors. You know, it's caused by them falling over in the first place, the fact they may have an underlying infection. It's impacted by them having an anesthetic and an operation. It's related to them being in a new environment, accident, emergency, theatres, recovery, the orthopedic ward, the rehabilitation ward. It's impacted by drugs that we're giving them. It's impacted by them having urinary retention. And it also relates to the earlier points of anemia as well. 
And it's quite simple and it's part of the NHFD tariff that we can assess and diagnose delirium using 4AT, which is very straightforward. And I'd recommend everyone who doesn't know what 4AT is to Google it and see how straightforward it is. And the reason I'm, I'm so keen about talking about delirium is that it should be all of us that identifies delirium because if we're thinking about delirium, then we can look at tackling some of these causes to try and reduce the impact of delirium on our patients. And the reason it's so, so important is that there is huge amounts of evidence that suggests that patients who develop delirium, if they're matched to similar patients that don't have delirium post necrophema fracture, they have terribly worse outcomes. They get more complications, they have a higher mortality, and they spend a large, large percentage of time of in hospital and eventually end up being discharged more favorably to institutional care rather than their own home. And so I think it's part of the whole MDT's role to identify delirium so that it can be a major factor that we look for to try and prevent it from happening. Thank you very much.